my name is Karen Streb and I'm the Vice President of Communications for Infrastructure Resources. I'd like to welcome each of you to the Excavation Safety Alliance Town Hall. And our topic today is what are the top issues affecting the utility locating industry and how do we resolve them? Our ESA Town Halls are an open forum to discuss concerns and present potential solutions to improve damage prevention and excavation safety. A recording of this town hall will be posted on the ESA website along with a brief blog post. We also post the chat log, so if you do not want your comment or name included, please note that with your post. If you have a question during the town hall, please type it into the chat box or click the raise hand icon. Give us a couple of seconds and we'll give you permission to unmute yourself. To unmute, you'll simply click on the microphone icon at the top right corner of your screen. Today's meeting is meant to be a discussion, and you're all encouraged to ask questions and share your solutions. Please try to keep your comments brief to allow others time to interact. We'll wrap up around 1130 Central Time, but the conversation may continue with coffee and questions after a brief survey. Now I'll let Mark, Mark introduce himself and our panelists. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark Drew. I'm the president of Vivax Medtech Corporation. Uh, we manufacture a range of lung locating equipment and mapping equipment and are based in Santa Clara, California. Um, I would like to introduce the uh, panel now. Um, Tracy. Yeah, my name is Tracy Purcell. I'm vice president with Bloodhound National Relationship Manager. Bloodhound specializes in private utility locating and niche public utility locating, and we're located in 32 states throughout America. I'm excited to be on the panel, and I'll turn it back to you. Okay, D. Yeah, my name is D. Terry. I'm with Benchmark Subsurface Utilities Locating. I run, I'm the director of the Southeast, and where most of our work is in the Virginia, Ohio area been in the business for 32 years. Thank you. Okay, we, we have one panel member who's a little bit late this morning, um, uh, Sean Haley. Um, hopefully he will get to join us here uh, shortly. With, with, with that being said, I'm Sean, I don't think you've arrived yet. Um, I do not so, see Sean yet. No, so why don't we dive in for, to the uh, First questions. Perfect. Um, the locate industry. Um, some of us have been in, in this industry for many, many years. Um, and we've seen all sorts of different issues over those years. And um, I'd like to, the, the, the first question is, how do we um, balance the work life and personal life in a 24-hour industry in the locate industry? Um, Dee, would you like to uh, start that one off? Yeah, that, that seems to be the issue right now, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> too, too much uh, work, not enough time. So that my company, what we are concentrating on and trying to, to balance that, we're going after one utility per tech. We're not doing multiple utilities on, you know, going out doing five or six locates for every ticket now. So that's what we're uh, we're doing now. Seems to be working. A lot less turnover, a lot less overtime, 
and uh, so it gives gives more for the tech. Uh, like you're saying, more of a life, I guess. Well, you know, I think also what's critical, right, is is that expectation and what's expected to be performed during a workday, having that mapped and laid out versus always feeling like I have to rush to get through a job. I think it's critical that, that leaders understand that when, when technicians are, are leaving for the end of the day, they may not be physically taking their work home with them, but they're mentally taking their work home from. So if they have a stressful day where it's ticket after ticket, whether or not I'm locating one utility or two or three, is the load management there? Is the communication there? Is the support and training there to, to make it a successful work day? And I think when, when we do that, when, when firms do that, the client, the, the employee then has a work-life balance that's that's manageable. But when those days stack up one after another, where they just don't see an end in sight, I believe that's when that 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 stress can can make that work-life balance difficult. Agreed. Um, uh, do we have any other comments from the 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 room? There, there's nothing in the chat yet, but I know that okay. one of the pieces that have come up in the conversations that we've had relate to the emergency tickets. Um, and so maybe that's something that you guys can talk about as well, is that having those emergency tickets that need to be resolved um, and some may may or may not be um, true emergencies. Well, Karen, I think you hit that with your last comment. Are they a true emergency? And, and I think when, when you back up and debrief about the emergency, sometimes it's because a process wasn't followed. We're now in a situation where the locate needs to be done and an emergency ticket is completed. And if there's no ramification or accountability, that contract locating firm partner has to respond whether or not it's a true emergency or not. But if you have that dialogue and communication where I can reach out to that contractor and go, is this truly an emergency? Because that's the way it was entered. I want to make sure I'm responding. I want to take care of my client who's that utility owner and make sure we're efficient and safe. Um, so I think that's a key component of it. Another comment um, that we just got in is when there's no consistency in workload, it's hard to allow for this work-life balance. It'll be a partnership with the one calls to allow for limited tickets in counties. And then we had a response to that um, from Susan Bull, who's the executive director of Oki 811, letting everyone know that one calls don't have the authority to limit the number of tickets coming in. So I think that's a really good point. And and really valid for the conversation right now is the view of we need to look at the one call to help control the number of tickets and that's not that's not within their scope. Um, so we do have one question for for D specifically uh, from Gordon Campbell um, out of Canada. So could D elaborate 
on his comment of one utility per locator and how that works in a one locate, one locator world. Um, and then once D is done, Mark, I do have additional comments to share. Okay. Yes, obviously I was in the world for many years um, where we do a six way locate. You know, every utility under the ground when you respond. So the tech gets overwhelmed, like we were saying, and um, and, and the day's never long enough. And you take it home, you do the same thing for seven days a week, can't get ahead. So what, what we're attempting to do is, yes, the utilities are paying a little bit more, but if we have, just to say power, one, one uh, locator locating just power every time he gets very experienced on the power only, and he, there's a lot less um, late locates on the power due to because we couldn't get a phone line or a gas line or a whatever, a fiber optic located at the at the site. So he's, it, it's, and it's bringing the stress level of the, the text down a lot. I mean, it's working great in Virginia, Ohio, uh, Florida, Georgia, right now we got it. It's, it's just a new way. Yes, it does. It is going to cost the utility a little bit more because that's all we're responding to. But the emergencies, the, you know, the, the turnover, everything is, um, you know, it's just working out that way. I mean, that's, is that, would that kind of answer the question? I think that's good for now. And if they, if uh, Gordon, if you're looking for additional information, just let me know in the chat and we can, I can either connect you with D um, outside of the conversation or um, we can further ask your question here. And I see that Sean is here. So Sean, if you want to take a moment to quickly introduce yourself as we get going. Yeah, sorry, I was a little late getting on. Y'all could probably no see problem. me jumping out. I could hear y'all, but I couldn't, uh, couldn't see you. Um, <laughs> My name is Sean Haley. I'm the CEO of uh, LionQuest and founder. Started it back in 2013. Uh, love damage prevention. Love, love what it stands for. Um, everyone does things a little bit differently, but I think uh, there's room for everybody. And uh, happy to be a part of this call. Um, I heard what a couple people were saying as it uh, pertains to employee. It sound like hiring and retention, things like that. Uh, those are definitely things that, that we're facing and um, as the conversation goes on, I'm sure I'll comment on some of that. Perfect. Um, we had one comment come in, and I think it's valid, but I don't think the one call is in the position to, to determine what their member can or cannot handle when it comes to workload. So going back to that piece of um, of the workload and, and monitoring the number of tickets that are coming in, we have some questions from Andrea. Um, so the first one is, what can we do as an all-encompassing industry to hire more locators for everyone? So I don't know, Mark, if you want to disperse that question. There's actually two parts that she has. The second is when there's all this money for FOBs and RDOF work, where is the money for the locator expense to get the paint on the ground to get the work done? And what can we do to change that or receive that? And I will be honest, I don't know what the acronyms FOBs or RDOF mean. So if somebody could clarify those or Andrea, if you could put that in the chat, I'd be happy to share it with everybody if I'm unless I'm the only one who doesn't know. Fiber. Get a fiber overbuild. I, 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 I think that's a, good, a great question. Um, locating as a career. I, I, I don't know about a lot of uh, you, you, you guys on, on the line here, but I, I know when um, I'm talking to people outside of the industry and you say, OK, so, so, so what do you do? Um, we manufacture equipment for finding buried pipes and cables. 
they look at you as though, okay, what, what, what is that? And it is how do we raise the profile for the locator? Um, should it be a skilled uh, position as an electrician, or as a plumber? Will that help promote the industry so that the locator has a career as a skilled position? So I'm interested to hear some of your comments on that. Uh, Sean, you're the last one. Do you want to start that one off? Yes, yeah, so if I heard right, um, what you're saying, is, are you comparing locators to like uh, skilled electricians and technicians like that? Yes, yes. Should should it be a skilled position where a locator can can literally go to college to learn everything about locating, you know, community college, uh, college courses for 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 locating? Absolutely. I, I think I think it should be. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress through the years to where now there's there's different classes and different certifications. Uh, there's, you know, NOLCA that offers national accredited mm -hmm. companies, things like that. But I think it needs to continue to progress as the industry just gets bigger. There's more and more locators out there. And so um, as an industry, we're forced to expedite our training right now, uh, whether you like it or you don't. Right now, we're we're forced. Uh, you know, with a lot of these fiber overbuilds and and different things, Google projects have come in. There's there's various different projects that um, just in different areas that that make us expedite our training. So, yeah, I think if if uh, you know there were colleges or or technical courses that were available, um, you know, for outgoing uh, high school students or, or things like that, I think there would it would garner a lot of interest. And and I, I definitely. You know, as an employer, I would definitely be interested in in looking that direction. You know, any any edge uh, that that we can get is is well received. So yeah, I, I think there's a need for it. Yeah, yeah this is going to be around for many many years of, of locating buried pipes and cables, um, and um, <clears throat> it's it's a career that someone could have for many 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 years. So uh, Tracy, uh, any comments on that? Well, I think we can all look within our own companies and see the trajectory of our employees um, that are successful. And that's been here a decade, two decades, performing locates. And when you speak with them, typically what you'll hear is there was a track built for me. I had leadership and support that reinforced my skill sets expanded my skill sets and allowed me a great living and a great career. And I think on the front end with, with what Sean was sharing, the volume is so much and the span of being able to train is, is becoming shorter that maybe we need to readdress, reaffirm that career opportunity earlier on versus maybe plugging a volume issue that yes, there are volume issues, but along with that comes career advancement, opportunities. Dee was saying in their company, one locator, one facility. Well, maybe they start off with fiber, then they go to electric, then they go to gas, and then now they can go anywhere to be able to do all those facilities. But is that career path outlined for them at the company? So one of the points that Andrea mentioned for the RDOF, which is the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, it will disperse up to 
$20.4 billion over the next 10 years to bring, bring fixed broadband and voice service to millions of unserved homes and small businesses in rural America. So the need for the additional locators as we look at it becoming um, more of a conversation piece for for people as their career opportunity, I think is going to be is going to be necessary. Um, another question that we have is, how do you deal with gas line stubs and retirements? Dee, do you want to kick that one off? Um, well, I don't have any gas down here where I'm at. So, so if someone's doing gas at the time, I'd probably better. I haven't done gas in ten years. Sean, Tracy? I, I think when it comes to, to gas, abandoned stubs, I'd say the number one thing is what's our records look like? Do we know where those are? And how are we implementing processes and procedures to identify them? Uh, typically, you know, there's been a lot of funding a lot of growth with with uh, main replacement programs, right? Bear Steel, Bear Castile replacements over the last five, six years. Um, through that process, how's it been identified? What's being replaced versus what is new? Are the maps updated? And do we have an understanding what's underground? I don't know if that answers it. But I know those are things when we're communicating and working out in the field, um, having a knowledge and understanding of those prints, how they're updated and getting to them is critical. I think that that speaks to the need for for mapping and just that open conversation um, to make it easier for everybody in the industry as a whole. We do have a comment from Tracy Bryant. There's a conversation about having all tickets start on day three and our locate resources could route their day more efficiently. Instead of chasing times, all tickets are due by the end of that day, such as a midnight or a 7 a.m. ticket. Um, and if you would give me a couple moments, I know that, so Megan from Georgia 811 said, our dig law updated to allowing the excavator to select an effective date up to eight days out. We deliver the tickets as they were created, but it's up to that member or locator to route those tickets into the workload and when. So just going to three days is only the first step. We're seeing some folks holding the tickets and not routing them until the traditional two days, despite the early ticket delivery. And that began in Georgia in September of 22. Um, and then I believe that, oh, no, that was a different comment. I thought somebody else. So if you guys want to talk about that kind of limited time ticket or the varied time ticket that Tracy's talking about, are you guys working in states where they have that where that applies at this point? In, in Georgia, it's definitely, definitely working. Um, it, it allows kind of, I'm going to say it in a different way, I guess, of grouping your tickets, you know, this part of town, that part of town. To get, if you can go out for two days out, you can hit the southwest corner of your area today, to northeast tomorrow. It helps a lot in routing your tickets for sure. Okay. Now this speaks to multiple utilities to locate is very stressful on the locator and makes time performance not achievable. It also makes the overall locate less safe as corners are cut. And this kind of stress also makes for turnover high. So I guess that would be 
for those that do the multiple locates, where do you see the benefits to doing that, that you've kept that within your system? You know, the Go ahead, Sean. I feel like the challenge is the balance. So um, as a locate company in general, you're trying to do uh, the locates at a, a way or at a price that the companies can afford. Um, so the challenge is always uh, one work-life balance for your locators, trying to, to have them do as much as possible while uh, maintaining high quality. So the quality quantity is always the kind of the variant of how much can you do while maintaining top quality. Uh, us personally, we do one-way locates. So um, I feel like that's for us, it works the best to get that quality. But I know there's companies out there that do multiple way locates and they do them efficiently and, and they found ways to, you know, to, to be able to uh, maintain that high quality. So there's different ways to skin a cat, um, but that's the challenge is quantity versus quality. How can we obtain both? Because there's uh, pressure from both ends of the spectrum. So from clients, you know, the, especially the bigger, bigger clients, um, it's tough to, to win some of those bids if you're doing a one-way locate. So, um, you know, that's, that's the challenges that we face, um, just being transparent. Tracy, did you have anything that you wanted to add on that piece? Well, I, I just think that it comes back to that baseline and, and you're doing that, that training, onboarding, et cetera. If I'm a, if I'm a technician going into a career and I'm getting the training and the support, whether or not I'm locating one or four, there has to be a stage to be able to get there. And whether or not you're, you're locating those three lines, but I only have a lot of experience on fiber and power and limited you know, experience on gas. Then it's that training, that onboarding, that, that growth of that technician to get that comfort level um, and quality to be able to do that, that locate with three utilities on it, one of which is gas. And I don't think it's just as easy as saying, um, we're only locating one or we're locating up to four. I think it comes back to whether or not it's one or four, do we have the quality and the training and the support to make that a successful locate? Sure. Sean, if you would, we had the question come in of what is a one-way locate. So if you would be happy to define that, then we have a lot more in the chat to get through as well. A one-way locate is basically uh, one truck roll and you're, you're locating one facility on that truck roll. Perfect. Uh, so Susan um, in Oklahoma had the comment that in Oklahoma, we're starting to see more facility operators shifting to a mix of internal locators and third-party locators. It's probably too early to know if this model is helping with the work-life balance of locators, but that's certainly something that we can keep an eye on as we see people shifting the way that they're doing it. Within the chat, um, we have quite a bit of support for having this become kind of that technical service or um, an accredited service, sort, sort of some sort of program for locators that would be done throughout the US. Um, another question that we have that came in is, what can be done to enforce reducing tickets being called in by contractors who continuously call in contact, I'm sorry, include call in tickets that aren't being worked on? 
That's part of why there's an excessive ticket load for locators. Go ahead, Tracy. Well, I, this is a big discussion that, that goes around and, and Sean and Dee, um, you know, live, I mean, it's lived every day. And how many locates have been performed? You could go out there a week later, not an inch of dirt has been moved. And then that ticket could go on and then it's called in again. Um, so there's no ramification, no enforcement to call in a ticket and dig on that ticket. Um, I can just keep calling that ticket in. And I think to loop that in with the fiber overbuild and the rural build out, EVs coming in, so we're going to have that na nationwide. Those volumes that are getting called in, how are we going to take care of those if we don't know when they're happening? Um, so on top of that, right, there's no limit to what can be called in. Each state has a different footage amount of what can be called in, but there's no accountability to say, I'm actually digging there. Going back to the skilled trade conversation, one comment is being a skilled trade certification may help reduce some of the churn, but in areas with heavy winter slowdowns, keeping locators busy could become an issue. Another comment on that is how much do we pay locators? Would it make sense for them to spend money on college and they could have a promise of return? So I know that um, compensation is something that typically comes up during this conversation. I don't know if anybody wants to speak to that. Um, I'll speak to it a, a bit. Um, I mean, if you if you think about the wage of a locator versus other skilled trades or other, uh, you know, uh, consistent, um, you know, college programs such as education, the teachers, things like that. I mean, with a locator, you can almost go anywhere in the in the nation and get a job, uh, and there's multiple multiple uh companies in any given area that you can get a job with and so um i mean i think it's a it's a good wage right now that i, I won't speak on it because i know there's different wages but in general um i would say it's teacher type pay or or better in a lot of areas um and so i i think it's definitely worth it uh to have you know like a college program um that's, that's out there there's um, I mean, you can you can pick any city in in the United States, and and there's locators there. So um, I think the I don't know what the recent numbers are, but there are tens of thousands of locators out there. And um, I mean, you can you can pick who you want to work for right now. Everybody needs you. Everybody everybody wants and needs good locators. So if you have that skilled um, you know training, you are going to be in high demand. So. But I think what yeah. what we shouldn't forget, though, is, right, I can have that training. I can be a great locator, but am, am I in a culture that, that wants me, respects me, and allows me to grow? And I think we all have that within our companies. And being able to do that shows that value, right? And it keeps people from saying, you know what, I can go anywhere, do whatever I want, to this is where I want to be, and I want to grow, and then I can be a mentor for others in this industry. 
looking yeah. at oh go ahead I'm, I'm sorry i just wanted to comment on that because kind of the elephant in the room here so i'm just a little bit on it without a bank of people to get like you know we'll start a new contract put it out you have people coming out of this training or college or how whatever you want what's happening right now is we're just going right to as soon as we everybody that's on this call in the locating industry as soon as you put anything out you're going to get the ones from the other locate and you know for that extra quarter that other 50 cents so then we're pulling them from them now they're short and now they're putting that's just back and forth until we get some bank of people you know with, with i don't know degree or locating certificate or whatever i mean that's just what's happening right now right i mean i know sean knows that uh, for sure tracy knows that i mean we just go back and forth and it's just it's hurting each other a lot Another comment from or question from Tracy Bryant, and if you don't mind, I'll go through because we did have some people that responded to her through the comment section is, does anyone have experience trying to get a piece of the federal funding of all those fiber projects? All utilities are impacted getting those installed, but the funding appears to be going to the fiber companies only. Um, and so we did have a response of some of those funds to the fiber company will be filtered down to the locate contract company with the increased volume and increased pricing for the locates. Um, and then Mike Reese had said, yes, my firm is having very initial conversations with the Economic and Commerce Department on the state and federal level. Conversations are slow, but they are being had. So I don't, I don't know if you guys wanna speak to the funding that Andrea had mentioned early on in the conversation and how, how that can impact other utilities. Can't speak too much on it, but um, we are, as a locating company, we are a product of the companies we work for. So essentially, if if they're being funded, um, it, it does trickle down because we're a product of of that company. So uh, sure. the more funds received, the uh, you know, it, it does benefit us, but uh, not directly. It's more indirectly right now. But we're looking in, and I know at our company, we're looking into some of that funding, as as far as how we might get it directly or direct, uh, but we haven't got there yet. Okay. We have one from um, a contractor and he says, as a contractor, my company loses tens of thousands of dollars in downtime because of no locates. 80% of the jobs we arrive at have downtime because of the locates. The locate companies don't seem to care. No one is held accountable and we have no way to recoup lost revenue. I suggest billing the locate companies for the downtime. This is in Minnesota and Eastern Wisconsin. So that's just a comment, but we do have a, a hand raised from Roger Richards. Levi, if you could give them permission to unmute, uh, Roger can share his comment himself. Roger, I believe you should be able to unmute now. Not hearing Roger, I see we have a second hand raised. Um, so Scott Hattenberg, Levi, if you could also allow him to unmute his mic. Yes, you're, you're both free to do that now. Okay, um, so a little bit of history. I'm on the CGA uh, TR committees. I've been on the uh, Washington State Dig Safety Board, lobbied in three different states for dig laws. 
Um, so been a contractor all my life. My dad was a contractor. My grandfather was a utility uh, lineman. So just background. So one of the things that I guess kind of gets really difficult for me a lot of times is we have a contract we have to perform. We have liquidated damages if we don't make it. I have never figured out, and this comes down nothing against locators or the locate companies. This goes back to the facility operators. Why is it that they do not want to pay enough to have that same type of standard, which is pretty typical in most construction contracts? You break breach a contract, which would be anything that relates to the law not having been performed. Why is it those contracts, they don't want to put that in there? We all know that conversation. The real issue is the facility operators, and I'm going to say this, are cheap because that comes usually out of shareholder profit. And so it's unrecoupable if it's a regulated utility. So whether it's gas, electric, phone, um, they have to pull that from shareholder profit and they don't want to do it. And the problem is the whole process suffers, I believe, because whether it's payment down to uh, the locate companies or so that they can have people on um, a higher wage scale as more of a professional, those are the things that really need to be addressed. If we keep, I mean, I know I've been called a locator hater, but I try to tell everybody it's not the locator's problem. It's really the facility operator's not wanting to pay to do the process correctly. And small companies, medium companies, the big companies don't care. I'm gonna tell you that right now. They don't wanna raise waves, they don't care. They'll just, they'll sit and they'll pull it from somewhere else. But the small guys, you know, like I'm not a big company. We're the ones who get hammered by late locates, mislocates. I've got over $100,000 of documented downtime from the gas company where we um, were doing work last year. And we're gonna, we're gonna be required to do between three different companies, 40,000 feet in urban environments in the next year, a month. So we have to do that. I have liquidated damages of $5,000 a day if I don't meet that. And so it has to be done. And I don't know if they wanna go try to, I don't know how it gets fixed, but I can't pay for it. Um, so it has to be located and it's very frustrating. So anyway, that's what I had to say kind of that whole process. Scott, if you want to mention your requirement too for your installation, I hadn't gotten to that part in the chat. Um, well, we're, yeah, we're being required from three different companies. It kind of totals up. One's 20,000 a month. The other one's going to be 15 and one's going to be 5,000 feet a month of directional boring. And we have to do it. I mean, we're under contract to do it. If we didn't do it, somebody else does. Um, it has to be done. So the issue comes down to how do the locators get paid? Well, it has to come from the locate companies under current law. And so the locate, not the locate companies, but the facility operators. The facility operators are the ones who, you know, they, of course, put their names on stadiums and they pay their executives millions and millions of dollars a year instead of actually paying attention to those locate companies probably need some more money so that they can have some help. Does anyone have anything that they'd like to add in response to Scott's comment? I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand with the comment that you read. Um, we didn't really address that, but I'd like to kind of address that. Um, so as a locate company, um, yeah, um, we hear this on a on a daily basis about uh, late tickets and how that affects uh, the contractors. So I'm definitely sensitive to to that comment there. Um, 
facility owners have made a big push uh, with contracts with uh, on-time percentage, late tickets, and they're penalizing locate companies. So the scenes have kind of changed um, over the years uh, as it pertains to, lo to you know, locate contracts and, and things like that. And uh, won't go too, too far into it, but um, there's a huge push being made uh, from locate companies as well as facility owners uh, to uh, minimize not only the contracts, but minimize that, uh, maximize the on-time performance and uh you know penalizing us accordingly so uh we do care about it uh comments that local chemical care definitely care uh, because it hits our pocketbooks as well so uh that comment yeah this is gerald at usic if i could comment to both scott's and sean's uh statements there first of all Back to Scott's statement, you know, appreciate the locator haters, love talking to those folks every chance I get, being a locator myself. But the issue oftentimes, more so over the last few years, is a foundational one that we, we continue to refuse to address, which is talk to any locator on this call, talk to a lot of operators, and some of the contractors are aware of this problem. And it's the ability to call in any amount of work when you want, without regards for the prior historical planned resources. And I'll take one utility as an example that we have here in the state of Illinois that's done a tremendous job of tracking this. And last year has been quoted as telling everyone that their work area scope, not the volume of tickets, not the number of tickets, but the amount of area being requested to be marked increased by 249% for the entire area they cover for all of central and southern Illinois. So if you're not aware that that work is coming, if you have not let the operators or the locators know that you're going to be doing that work in time for them to plan, hire, train, and have the resources available to do that work, that's crippling this industry and is not being addressed across the country to a large part. We have a number of smaller things that we're trying to do and put in place. In Illinois, we've started a tool that looks at not only the volume over the last five years for every municipality, we're also tracking work area scope and polygon size to determine if there's also an issue with the amount of work being requested. And on that note, I'll add to this. I know we talked earlier about call center engagement and while I agree the call centers are not the ones that enforce, I completely understand. The call centers are the gatekeepers for the information as it comes in. So who better to notify someone when the work exceeds prior historical volume and demand than the call center when you're requesting a ticket to notify the excavator. Look, it's very busy here. Your work might be delayed. Expect you might get a call or potentially even plan out further to allow for the response for those resources. So there are plenty of things that we could do incrementally to help address that. But to address the concern of downtime, to say that, well, is it any one entity's issue to address or to pay for or respond? To that I say, was it the operator that was supposed to know that there were 10,000 of you that wanted to dig that day when last year or the year before, maybe there were only 4,000? And then how do you address that? Because last I checked, um, 
operator utility response, there's no right of refusal like you might have if you want to go out and dig a hole. So if the law says 48 hour response, get it done or else, that's what we're left with. So until we can address who's going to monitor and to gatekeep the amount of work that comes in for the historical planned resources. And again, I agree, we should have to plan for the resources based on the information we've been provided to say, here's what you need to expect. If you don't meet that demand, that should be on us, the operator. But when that demand exceeds, far exceeds the ability to address that work, then I say, well, we're all in the same bucket. That's all, thank you. Levi, I see Scott's hand is raised again, and then Roger, if you're able to unmute yourself, I see that your hand is still raised. To respond to, I just wanted to respond to Gerald. That's really what that is. That's the purview of every state's uh, legislature. So those are things, if you want to actually make that work, it's going to take lobbying. It's going to take stakeholder involvement. Um, Washington State, we have to open the dig law to change it. There is uh, negotiated rulemaking in Idaho and Oregon and Montana, which helps. But that's that's the place that if you're going to have anything, that's the only place you'll ever make that work because we have to go back to the owners and we have to go, OK, look, I can't do it. I shouldn't be held to the contract. It needs to be some type of a, um, something that's outside my contract and scope of what I'm de de dealing with. And if I don't have that in the law, I'm held liable to that contract. The other thing probably, and this is one of the TRs I'm on with the uh, with Common Ground Alliance, is this whole idea of getting to a sue process. Like, you know, Colorado has a semi-sue, basically. Um, it's in the law in Idaho and Washington and Oregon, but it's not defined or well enforced. And that is, now this is going to be another issue, but that is doing some level of sue. Everybody knows what sue is, correct? Um, Sue, you know, is that is that subsurface utility engineering where you go in, Kemp talked about it in the chats. In Seattle, they actually require it for permits. It's not in the rest of the state. It's only in Seattle. Um, but it does it does help some of that. But I still, as a contractor, can't rely off of Kemp Sue that he did when I go in to do my work. So ASCE 3802, um, engineering standard states that all projects will be in subsurface utility engineered. I have asked this at every municipal project, heavy civil project, private project. We do a broad range of stuff, um, fiber optic, gas, power, and there is not one engineer out there that will do anything with it. Um, we do have some couple, couple cities that are pretty good on the back end with it. But really, if you want to start changing the system, it has to come from the laws and it really should start with subsurface utility engineering. That's what will help your ticket volumes, because at that point, everybody has a record of what's in there because it's already been engineered. Yeah, with regards to that statement, I appreciate that because we actually have a bill in Springfield right now where we're trying to incrementally put some of those things in place. So much appreciated. That is the path we're taking. But I think to follow up on that, right, I don't know an excavator that's going to dig without paint on the ground. So we can have those that Sioux process, which I think it does save money when you do it ahead of time. You know what's there. You don't know what's there. And so you can plan it, save costs, and have a target time frame. You can roll things out more efficiently and safely. But when that sewer is complete, and then a year or two later, we have construction going on, has a communication happened over those one or two years to say, 
we're going to be going live and does all the operators know it so so if there's a gas fiber electric water sewer everything they're going okay who's coming in next year can we ramp up to take care of that need because when you're dealing with sue you're usually six months at the earliest two years at the latest before construction happens so where's that disconnect between sue and digging and all of the players being able to communicate and and ramp up according we do I if i can we we've done for over 25 years we have between our locating councils we do utility coordination every year we all get together and say here's what's going on you know i'll show up as a contractor and say here's what i know is going on um the utilities all get together i guess i assumed that was a practice that was happening everywhere um it's i think it's pretty critical it's all communication we do it every year and also every month at our utility coordination meetings we say hey here's what it is we have a large project we will have meetings every week with the facility operator saying here's what we have coming up i guess i don't understand why that's not happening but that that's on somebody to do that well the question would be you might have those meetings and you might provide your information what happens when said contractor, fiber operator, other utility company should come in that was not part of your meeting that drops in another 25 miles of fiber that was unanticipated for the group? How do you address that? Do I, as an operator, get to give you preferential treatment because you gave me that said notice as opposed to someone that came in and dropped 200 miles of fiber and did not give anything but 48 hours notice how do you address that problem because it's one of a collective response um, again we hold utility council meetings and i think those things are wonderful but when we send out invites to over 200 operators and seven show up for those meetings that's problematic so again i agree with you if you've given me that notice and we're having those meetings i would love to be able to say I need to make sure your project's addressed. Unfortunately, for those uh, players that do not provide that response, they're given the same treatment as those that have. That's problematic. So Pennsylvania has Sue in their 811 law and any project over $400,000 must use a sufficient level of Sue. Tracy, to go back to your comment, I think one of the things is because right now, it's not part of the process. That's where we have such a disjointment with the timing on when it comes in. And so I know that there are some states that are working more aggressively to have Sue brought in in the early phases of the project. Wayne Jensen mentioned a tremendous amount of projects are designed without Sue and contractors have to bid project without any Sue da data to determine the cost they'll incur um, installing the facilities with unknown conflicts. So. That's just one of the pieces as it goes to speaking to Sue. We have quite a few uh, things in the chat, so I will try to scroll back and get get most of it in. I believe that this is going to be one where we'll have to do a second a second edition of this conversation as well. Um, this Scott had mentioned the problem with load balancing is we roll hydro excavators before the million before the million dollar per crew bore machines get there. So we need to have things located on large projects. So I know that that's one of the, the pieces that people have brought up in addition is knowing what equipment they're gonna have available and things like that with the with the excess of tickets. But Tracy, it looks like you might have something that you wanted to share. Yeah, I, I think 
I think every one of us can agree. When there's a successful large project, everyone knows what's going on and everyone knows where things are going. I don't care what state we're in, we could pick 10 projects that work really well that were large and everybody was on the same page, whether or not you have Sue going on or not going on. We can look at our client that says, hey, this is what I have going on next year. I need you to ramp up. Our client works with the municipality. Hey, we're coming in next year. So if you don't have the locating needs, we'll bring additional resources for you. Um, the subcontractor's doing the boring. They have their schedule. They understand their schedule. And when all those things are communicated and fit hand in glove, we all raise our hand and go, that's how we need to do it. But the problem is that's not being done all the time. So whether or not you have Sue as a component in that or not, that communication that brings in all owners, not just facility owners, but owners of the project to make it successful, that's when it happens. And I think to go back to Gerald, when you have those unknowns, ticket volumes, additional tickets called in over and over and over, um, that's difficult to, to manage that. So Wayne had made the comment that I had read about the bid projects and using Sue and uh, Bill Steinhardt had the comment, it's tough to get designers to use Sue. I feel like I'm selling insurance. Pay me now or pay me later. The big sell is getting designers to understand that there is a cost savings if Sue is used. So that's Kemp a, Garcia. That's a fact. And okay. that's a fact. When when you perform Sue, um, your overall project cost will be lower. The question is, um, are you doing Sue based upon 3802? Or do you think you're doing Sue internally? when your in, internal engineers are going out on site capturing data and making assumptions and then we may be skipping a step but we feel we're doing the right thing because that's the way we've always done it and i think 3802 municipalities and states tying that to permitting um, that's sports in the hand to say you have to do it there's a comment from Kemp Garcia, who's out of Washington, these projects are put out for bid. In most cases, the owner of the projects have indicated prior to bid this work is coming out. Maybe the locators can track that. It takes about 10 minutes each morning morning to search at a bid clearinghouse, and then they may know the work is that is coming. So I don't know if that's um, anything that you guys would be willing to share if you guys are watching for that to kind of get a scope of work that might be coming. Um, a lot of contractors have started hiring their own locators, not only to meet their needs, but to help verify the locator marks. Um, are you guys seeing a lot of interaction with those other locators when you're on a job site? Yes, in Georgia, they're they're trying it now with a, a company's hired their four or five locators going in front of their jobs, like we're talking about kind of large project jobs right now working pretty good i mean uh, at least they're not getting as many surveys called in to uh you know called 20 30 miles of surveys now and for locators we got to do their their private locators with their company are going out first but 
working pretty good in Georgia for the two. There's only it's just a trial, like you said. It's only companies doing it in Georgia. Sean, did you have something that you had wanted to add? I noticed you went off mute. Um, I mean that's that's how I started as a private locator. I worked for an oil company or oil service company, so I definitely think that uh, a lot of companies do that. I think it's good. Uh, more eyes on the on the project. So, um, you know, you know, one thing that's known is not every company has someone locating their facilities. So there's a lot of com there's a lot of lines out there that go unmarked. And so those private locators can pick up anything that hasn't been marked. It just makes the industry safer. Yeah, and and, and to expand upon that, Sean, um, that is the case. So when these builds are happening, um, there's many times where municipalities don't have a resource to be able to keep up with the volume. I mean, they may have one locator, and that locator is also having other responsibilities within a water department or sewer department, et cetera. And so it may be a small project overall, right? It may be a community of uh, 4,500 people or 10,000, but for that community and that municipality, that's their world. I mean, it's huge. And to be able to partner with clients to come in and be a resource um, has been great to see and to be a part of. So as Sean said, to, to make that entire scope safe. So the power is getting located, the gas is getting located, they have the locating resources, but those municipalities may not. And that's been a, an area where we've been able to to partner um, over the past two years. Yeah, Raymond just had the comment that said we went all the way around the world and now we're back to the same question of we need more locators. So there is that. Um, Ryan also echoed some of the sentiments that you had, Tracy. He said he agrees. Depending on the size of the project, sue can occur up to two years in advance of construction and designs are adjusted to avoid as many conflicts as possible. Any changes are communicated between all of the stakeholders, including the utilities, and utility coordinators are coordinating the relocations, project developments, et cetera, all the way into project letting and often into construction. They're coordinating with the various utilities, and one of the very first questions that is asked at this project startup is, what work do you have planned? So I think, I think involving Sue more and I think having that become part of the norm is something that would be favored. I agree, but but you can look at a 10-mile build of a main. You may have 10 different, not 10, five different permitting entities that you have to work with to get that overall build done. Right, I'm going through this municipality, the next municipality, and the next. And so that build may be targeted for 2023, but because of permitting, um, it's now 2024. Well, mm -hmm. companies have ramped up for that 2023 build, and now they don't have that work. It's been pushed to 2024. I mean, <clears throat> just that's just one example of where Sue's been done accurately, correctly, but getting that permitting for construction, um, there could be delays in that. Sure. 
Going off of Raymond's comment, uh, Tracy had said, we need to use the 811 system more efficiently, reduce the waste tickets and recalls on inactive job sites. This allows the locate resource to focus on active job sites and help excavators meet their schedules. So Scott, I will let you make a comment. We are getting close to time, but I have some things I'd like to wrap up with. So I'll pass it over to Scott. All right, pretty quick. One thing I wanted to say is everybody talks about doing one locate, but understand you've got FEMSA rules for liquids and natural gas pipelines. So then you are dealing with a lot of other issues. It becomes kind of problematic because not only that, in a lot of states actually on gas pipelines, it is as if the contractor was the company itself, the facility operator. So it makes it really problematic to say, yeah, one locator goes and does all tickets. That was all I had to say. Okay. So as we wrap up for today, um, Tracy, who has moderated an ESA town hall before and understands what our goals are, said everyone here today can impact damage prevention. So glad to see the turnout and participation. It is not excavator versus utility versus locator. And I truly think we can move into a space where we work together and help each stakeholder be successful. And Megan Rafinski said she totally agrees. We've got to think about several solutions to help with these issues. So on today's call, I know that we have um, members from the US, we have members from Canada, we have locators, utilities, one call centers, excavators. So we're broadening the audience and we want to make sure that that conversation is had. And from what I'm hearing today, um, we need to be working more with Sue or introducing Sue more into this part of the conversation rather than having it be around the conversation. Um, but if there are other takeaways that that we can help to advance this conversation so it doesn't feel as um, this group does this and this group should be doing that, um, that won't get us a solution. So that's what I'm here to help with. Do any of our panelists have any closing remarks that they would like to make? Okay. I, I think dialogue is important. Um, I, I, I reinforce Tracy's comments. It's about having safe digging, and we all have our role in safe digging. And the more we communicate with each other and proactively communicate, um, good things happen. And I would just close close with that. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for your time and for everyone who joined us. So it looks like we're at time. Um, if you would, please take a moment now to fill out the brief survey that Levi has posted in the chat so we can continue to improve these discussions and address topics that are important to you. And on behalf of everyone at IR, I'd like to thank you all for joining us. A recording of the town hall will be posted on excavationsafetyalliance.com, where you'll also be able to register for virtual future virtual town halls. We also have a special session on Thursday, March 30th to continue the conversation we had in January, which is how do you track the true total cost of a damage and not just the repair cost. April is going to be a busy month for everyone as we begin National Safe Digging Month. We'll also be hosting our April 13th town hall discussing defending utility damage claims, what the contractor or excavator can do to help their insurance carrier defend damage claims. And we'll be honoring locators during ELSA which is April 24th through the 30th. So be sure to check out free resources that are available through ESA. And again, I would like to thank all of our panelists. Thank you, Mark, for moderating. Um, and thank you for joining us and everyone that's gonna be going out in the field, stay safe. Have a great day.